I learned this song as a uh, child growing up. If you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. Sing it with me. If you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. If you're happy and you know it, then your face will surely show it. If you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. That's enough, don't you think? You'll never forget that I stood up here and sang, will you? There were other verses, right? Stomp your feet, uh, shout amen. I wonder this morning, though, what is it that causes you to want to clap your hands or stomp your feet or say amen? What is it that makes you happy? Happiness. I mean, we all want it. We chase after it, right? I discovered this week there is an app for your phone for happiness. Believe it or not, it's called the Live Happy app. You uh, download it to your phone. It has all kinds of tools that are supposed to keep you happy all week long. I guess you can put pictures and videos of happy places in there that you can look at, and there are encouraging words, and if you ask me, there's a bunch of psycho babble that's supposed to make you happy. We all want it, right? Peggy Noonan, who was a speechwriter for President Reagan, said this about happiness. She wrote, I think we have lost the old knowledge that happiness is overrated. We are first generations of man that actually expected to find happiness here on earth. And our search for it has caused such unhappiness. You see, we think that if we are not happy, then life simply isn't going very well, right? But what if we have a distorted view of happiness? What it means and how you get it. When I was living in Ohio a number of years ago, at the church I was at, the youth minister and I decided we'd go to a football game. And uh, we were given tickets occasionally, but we decided in this case we were actually going to purchase tickets for the football game. And so we found tickets for an early season game and bought our tickets and went to the stadium, and these were our seats. We had not paid attention to the fine print to realize that we, the reason we could get tickets is because they were obstructed view seats. They were great as long as the action was at the other side of the 50-yard line, but anything from about the 40-yard line in towards us, we couldn't see about half of the field. And so the only way that we knew what happened when the action moved to that end of the field was by the reaction of the crowd. If they cheered, it must have been something good. If they didn't, you know. And so finally, after the game rolled along for a while, uh, got way ahead, and people began to leave. So we were able to move down a whole bunch of rows to a new seat. And guess what? In those seats, you could see the whole field. And we were no longer dependent on the crowd to tell us what was happening. We could see it for ourselves. We just needed a change in seats to get a new perspective. Sometimes I think we have an obstructed view of life. And we, we let the crowd around us trick us into having some false ideas about what happiness really is. Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount by suggesting that maybe we need a new seat, that we need a new view on life. We need to begin to see life the way that He does. And so He suggests that we move to a different seat, to a a new position. Jesus in this process redefines happiness by giving us a fresh view of life. We've... uh, We started this series last week talking about there's an app for that. And we're really talking about what does it look like to really follow Jesus. And uh, last week we saw that Jesus invited Peter and Andrew and a couple of other guys to really to come and follow him, to be his followers. And he said there are two things I needed to do, remember? He said, first of all, you've got to drop your nets. 
And we talked last week that that means there is some stuff in our life that we have to, to get rid of. They couldn't physically hold on to their fishing nets and still walk after Jesus. They had to drop the nets. And then they had to follow. And we said last week there are probably some nets for all of us. In fact, we gave you a small piece of fishing net and hopefully you've still got that with you. And even as we talk today, maybe you want to think about, are there some nets in my life that I need to drop so that I can really follow Jesus? And I encourage you, if you didn't get one of these, uh, there are some baskets in the back there near the corners along the railing. Pick one of those up today because I want you to carry it around with you all this series. Because I'm convinced that sometime God is going to say to you over the next seven weeks, here's here's the net that you need to drop. Then Jesus said, I want you to follow me. Remember we said last week, that was more about following his life. Jesus was saying, come see my life. Come get covered in the dust of my life. And for us, that's often about closing that gap between where I am and where I would be if my life really looked exactly like Jesus wants it to look. Well, not long after that, Jesus took these guys who had just become his followers and he began to teach them about what it really looks like to follow him. And a crowd of people gathered on a mountainside and they began to listen in as Jesus taught. And that's where I want us to pick up today. And so I hope you brought your Bibles, as always. Somebody mentioned to me last week, some of you are, uh, you've got your Bible on your phone or your uh, iPod or, or your, uh, your Apple, uh, iPhone, I should say. And so that's fine too. Take that out. But find your way to Matthew chapter 5 because I want you to see these words for yourself and follow along. Matthew chapter 5, uh, beginning in verse 1. Here's the story as it unfolds. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to a mountainside and he sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now that word blessed is the Greek word markios. I just wanted you to know once in a while that I actually know a few Greek words here and there, or at least I read what other people say they they mean, you know. But here's what that word means. It can be translated happy. But the word really, if you get down to the root of it, means a whole lot more than just being happy. This is more the idea of a deep-seated joy, a peace and contentment that come not because of our circumstances, but because we have a, a different perspective on our circumstances. This is a, this is a joy and, and a peace and a contentment that come regardless of what is happening around us. This is a peace and contentment that is more powerful than our circumstances. And Jesus says that this is the kind of, this is the kind of happiness that I want you to have. There's another song I remember learning as a child, and don't fear, I'm not going to sing again. But I'll tell you the words. The words went something like this. Happiness is to know the Lord. Uh, having a change in my behavior. Um, finding my favor in Him, I think, with some happiness is the Lord. And then there was this line. The joy is there in spite of the tears that come. I've found the secret. It's Jesus in my heart. And that was the bottom line for these guys. As Jesus was teaching them about what it really meant to follow, the bottom line was Jesus wanted to understand the first step towards happiness is about following Me. But then He goes on to expand their understanding of how they could really have happiness, this joy, this peace, and this contentment. In the next few verses, he says we need to, to change our seat. We need to, to move to a new position. We need to get down to where we can see life the way that he does. First, he says, you, you need to move down to the seat of dependency. Here's how he says that beginning in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. 
Jesus says it's about being poor in spirit. Now, what does He mean by that? Well, He's not talking about financial poverty. Now, this, what Jesus is talking about is a poverty that comes from understanding that even if I owned everything, it would all be nothing without God in my life. It's an understanding that God is the most valuable thing I could have in my life. Jesus talks about those who mourn. And all of us have experienced heartache and heartbreaks, haven't we? We've all been in that place where things are broken in our lives and we realize, I can't fix this. The only one that could heal this is God. I um, have some scars on my knee because some of you have heard this story before. Uh, when I was in college one day, I was messing around on campus and uh, went running down this hill and jumped over a short railing, kind of down a, a ravine or a little hill. And as I landed and I jumped over that, I could hear things in my knee tear apart. It was very painful. And, uh, you know, there was surgery afterwards and going around on the crutches. You know what? Every time I look at those scars on my knee, I remember. I remember that tearing sound. I remember the pain. I remember hobbling around on campus for weeks on crutches. I remember all of that. But you know what? It's okay. Because I also know that it's healed that the surgery took care of it, and that I'm fine today because a healing took place. You know what? There are also scars on my heart. And I bet there are scars on your heart too. My heart at times in life has been broken. And when I look at the scars on my heart, I, I still remember. I can still remember exactly what it was that caused my heart to break. I can remember what it felt like. But you know what? It's okay. Because I also, when I look at those scars, remember the one that brought healing to my life. I remember that God was able to heal me. Then Jesus talks about the meek. The meek is the idea of giving up control. You know what? For most of us, the seat that we often sit in in life, the view that we often have, says that I, I need to hold on to control, don't I? In fact, I need more control. I need power. I need influence. The guy with the biggest pile of toys wins. That's happiness, right? Uh, Jesus says, no, actually, real happiness, this sense of peace and joy and contentment is found in letting go of control. Giving up control. I'm sure you've all had this experience. You've sat in the passenger seat of the car, right, and somebody else is driving and your leg suddenly you find it doing this as if you're going to be able to slow the car down any. Or maybe you're a little more bold than that and you actually begin to give suggestions to the driver about how they ought to, to drive. Or maybe sometime you've actually gotten to the point of frustration that you have actually said to them, would you just pull over let me drive? I can't stand it anymore. You know what though? When I fly on an airplane, it has never crossed my mind to get up and go and knock on the cockpit door and say, hey, you know what? I don't really care for the way you're flying. Could you slow down a little bit? Could you avoid some of those rough spots in the air? You know what? In fact, I'm so frustrated. Get out of the seat. I'm going to take over and fly the plane. Yeah, that's never crossed my mind. Now certainly, believe me, there have been times when I've been on an airplane that it seemed uncomfortable. I wondered about the pilot a little bit. But I've never been tempted to try to get up and take control of the airplane. Because I don't have any idea how to fly a plane. 
Life is like an airplane too. It's not in our control. We can't control what happens. We can't control our circumstances. We can't. But often we treat life like it's a car. Like we can say to God, hey, you know, that's enough, God. I'll fix it. Let me drive. Let me have control. Jesus says if we want to experience happiness in our lives, it's about letting go. It's about letting God have control. It's about coming to the place that I understand. I, I, can't, I can't change the circumstances. I, I just got to trust the guy who can. I've got to trust God. It's about moving down to the seat of dependency. Jesus says there's another seat that we ought to move to if we want to really experience this kind of deep sense of peace and joy and contentment. It is the seat of desire. The seat of desire. He says it this way in verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And then in verse 8 he says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. I like the way the message translates verse 6. It says it this way, You are blessed when you have worked up a good appetite for God. He is food and drink and the best meal you'll ever have. What are you hungry for? I'll have to be more careful about asking that question in the second service because it gets closer to lunchtime. They might tell me what they're really hungry for. But what are you hungry for? You know, uh, Peg and I both have done the diet thing many times. And, you know, really the whole thing about dieting in some ways I find some things humorous about it. You know, when it comes time for a, when we go on a diet, Peg is really much better about it than me. In fact, when we go on a diet, you know, when we're together, I try to behave. But honestly, when I'm not around her, I usually cheat. And um, she's out of town today, so I, I doubt that she'll ever listen to the tape. You know, she's really good about it, though. She goes into the restaurant, and she actually often will ask them for the nutritional guide, you know, the thing that tells you that's in all the food and how how much fat and all that kind of stuff that's in there, how bad it really is for you. I know people that when they're on a diet, they actually get together with friends and they talk about their diet. They talk about how badly they want to lose weight and they talk about how important it is to eat right. They spend a lot of time talking. But you know what I figured out about diets? It really doesn't matter how many nutritional facts you know or how long you sit around and talk about it or how much you say you desire to lose weight. You know what actually matters? (laughs) How much you eat. And what you eat. It's true in our lives, too. I know people who just, you know, will say, boy, I, I really want to follow God. I want to be happy. You know, they talk about, oh, I really have this desire to be more like Jesus. I have a desire to be happy. And they get together with friends and they, they talk about how much they want to be like God and how much they want to have happiness in their life. But what are they eating? That's the question. What, what do they hunger and thirst after? But what really is important to them? Jesus said, if you want to have this sense of joy and peace and contentment, then you've got to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, I'll be honest with you this morning. I don't always hunger and thirst for righteousness in my life. I'm not always seeking after the the pure heart that I ought to have. You know, when I give into indulgences, self-indulgences sometimes, and I have to do what you do. You know, I want what I want. And so at that moment, I'm not worried about the consequences. Maybe for you, more, it's more a, uh, an issue of neglect. You, you just don't really eat at all. 
or maybe for some of you, it's some, it's some secret sins that you're dealing with. You've tricked yourself or you've let somebody trick yourself into thinking that, well, it, it's not going to hurt anybody else. In fact, I wonder today, if we could, if we could take a picture of the refrigerator of your life, and we could flash that picture of the refrigerator of your life up here on the screen, and we could open the door of the refrigerator of your life and my life, what would we discover that we hunger and thirst for? Jesus says until we get to the point that we hunger and we thirst for Him, more than we hunger and thirst for other things, we're not likely to experience this kind of deep joy and peace and contentment that He desires for us to have. You know, if I uh, invited one of you, I'd invite somebody small that I could manhandle like this. But if I took one of you and we, we went to, you know, out to a body of water, went over to the river, and we waded out into the water, and I was strong enough to overcome you and, and held you underwater for a long time, but somehow with that last ounce of strength, that last grasp of air, you were able to get up from underneath that water. And I would then ask you, when you were under the water and thinking you were drowning, what did you want more than anything else? Well, you'd say air, right? To breathe. If we want this sense of happiness that Jesus talks about, we've got to get to the point that what we desire more than anything else in life is Him. There's one more seat that Jesus talks about. He says if you want to experience this kind of happiness, you've got to move down to the seat of influence. Listen again to verse 7. It says this, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Then verse 9 says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Jesus says if we want to experience this kind of happiness, we need to become people of influence. We need to be the kind of people who go into a place, a room, a situation, and we change the climate of what's there simply because we are so full of God. There are uh, two types of people. There are thermostats and thermometers. Thermostats and thermometers. I have a thermometer here. What does a, what does a thermometer do? A thermometer measures the climate of the room, doesn't it? A thermostat, on the other hand, actually controls or changes the climate of the place. Jesus says real happiness is found in becoming a person who is an influencer, who changes the climate who becomes a thermostat and changes or controls the climate where they are. Now, how do they do this? I think he points out three ways, very quickly. There's so much of this I want to dive into so much more deeply than we have time this morning. I realize after I started, we should have spent a couple of weeks just right here camped out on the Beatitudes. But quickly, let me mention these. He says we can change the thermostat, the climate of the room, first by being merciful. And you know what mercy is? Mercy is just about being a person who gives other people a second chance who gives them the, the benefit of the doubt. Mercy is about being patient with people. It's about having a, a gentle spirit towards those around us. And Jesus says a merciful person can change the climate of a room. He also says that a peacemaker 
changes the climate of a room. You know, you know what a peacemaker is? A peacemaker is somebody who is more concerned about people than they are a problem. We often get that reversed, don't we? We're often more worried about solving the problem than we are the people who are involved in the situation. Jesus says somebody who changes the climate of the room is a person who becomes more concerned about people. They're a peacemaker. And then Jesus says that somebody who changes the climate of the room, a thermostat, is somebody who is willing to take a stand for Jesus. You know what? More and more, our culture dislikes people who are really following Jesus. And I'm pretty convinced that people whose lives really look like Jesus wants them to look like, that more and more we will face some opposition, maybe even some persecution. Jesus doesn't apologize for that. In fact, He seems to indicate that's part of being covered in the dust of His life. Is that we are willing to take a stand for Him. That we will stand for righteousness and purity. That once in a while, we'll stand, well not once in a while, but all the time, we will stand firm in our culture, in our world, for what is right and true. So Jesus says, you, you want this sense of peace, this deep-seated joy, this contentment, then here's what you have to do. You have to learn to totally depend on God. Quit trying to fix it yourself. Quit trying to control all of your circumstances. And trust God. You have to be willing to hunger and thirst for Me more than you hunger and thirst for anything else. And you've got to become a person who tries to influence and influence the climate of the room and the place where you find yourself. Now you know what? You were some of you here came here today probably hoping that I had some really easy formula. That I was going to tell you, boy, if you'll just follow these three really simple steps, you will have happiness all the rest of your life. Well, that's not what Jesus teaches. These are tough things. I wouldn't stand here today and tell you, boy, I've got this all figured out in my life. I'm happy all the time. No, I'm still figuring it out. I'm still in that process. I'm still on that journey. But I am convinced that if I want happiness like Jesus describes here, this is the only way. There's no other formula. I stumbled across this old prayer. I think it originates with Fellowship of Christian Athletes years ago. Listen to what's prayed here. Maybe this could be our prayer. I am part of a fellowship of the unashamed. I have the Holy Spirit power. The die has been cast. I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I'm a disciple of Jesus and I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. My future is secure. I am finished and done with low living, sidewalking, small playing, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tame divisions, mundane talking, cheap giving, and dwarf goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotion, plaudits, or popularity. My faith is set. My gate is fast. My goal is heaven. My road is narrow. My way is rough. My companions are few. But my God is reliable and my mission is clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded, or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of the adversary, 
negotiate at the table of the enemy, ponder at the pool of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, shut up, or let up until I have stayed up, stored up, prayed up, paid up, and preached up for the cause of Christ. I am a follower of Jesus Christ. And here's my prayer. My prayer is that that will become our prayer. And that we will not be satisfied with just going through the motions of some outward facade of following Jesus. But that we will be determined to follow passionately, completely, fully. That we'll decide we really do want to be covered in the dust of Jesus. And that our lives really will begin to look exactly like Jesus wants them to look like. Got any nets you need to drop today? God, would you help us to be a people that are truly following you? God, we want to experience in our lives happiness. Not the kind of happiness that our world often describes, God, but this deep sense of joy and abiding peace and contentment. God, would You help us today to have the courage to say we're going to quit looking for it in all the ways that our culture says to look for it. But God, we're going to move down a few seats, a few rows in our lives to some seats where we can see life the way that You do. And God, we can pursue happiness the way that You desire for us to pursue it. God, we don't want to just go through the motions of life. God, we want to experience the passionate life that You have for us. So Father, would You help us to do that? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.